Father, we come expected, we come boldly to hear a message from you. And as we open up your word, I just pray that through the power of your Holy Spirit, that you will be a God that your people need you to be. We've all come from various journeys, various weeks. Some of us need comfort. Some of us need a big hug. Some of us have doubts. But whatever our need, I pray that your Holy Spirit will fill me So lead me and guide me and walk before me and I shall follow in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning, church. I feel like, I said to Bada, I feel like I'm walking out to play State of Origin. You know, like... The hype and the excitement and <laughs> boo Queensland. Um, but look, if you are a first-time guest, I welcome you. Um, you know, we're so grateful that you're here. You may not understand a lot about church. Um, you may even have questions about God, maybe even doubts. I'm so grateful that you're here and that you can join us for worship. Uh, church, I love you. It's so great that you could come here and spend the Sabbath with us. Um, if it's your first time in a long time. So grateful that you've been able to come here and brave the doors to be able to sit in our community. We hope that you're able to see Jesus and experience Jesus as you journey along with us as we go through the book of James. So before we get started, we are going to need our Bibles. Some of you have got it on the device, that's okay. But if you need a Bible, please raise your hand nice and high and we will bring a Bible to you. If you don't know your way around a Bible, that's okay. I'm going to be preaching from the same Bible and I'll call out page numbers so you'll be able to follow along as I read. So please raise your hand nice and high if you need a Bible. And as our Bibles are coming around... We have our uh, notebooks out there. If you need a pen, just raise your hand. Someone probably from the front can hand the pen back over to you. If you've got a booklet, you'll be able to follow along as I preach and as we go through our 10-part series on the book of James. Raise your hand nice and high. We'll bring a Bible to you. You'll be able to follow along as I read, because I'm preaching from the same Bible, and I'll call out page numbers. Everybody got a Bible? Okay, we are going to be reading from the book of James, page number 974, for those that have the Bible that were handed out, page number 974. And we're going to be reading from James chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. Page number 974. If you found it, just give me a mm mm-hmm, let me know. 
Oh, that's awesome. I love it. I love it to hear you. Just before we, we get into the reading, I just want to give a background inf- some background information into the author of the book. It is self-titled James. James is the half-brother to Jesus Christ. How is he half? We believe that um, the Holy Spirit uh, impregnated the Virgin Mary, um, which then she gave birth to Jesus. And then she had normal relations with her husband, Joseph. And from what the Bible can tell us, they had about six kids, sons and daughters. Um, They could have had more because back in those days, they had big families, right? Kind of like us islanders. We love family, right? So we know that about James. We also know from 1 Corinthians 9, chapter 9, verse 5, that James was married. And so in the inauguration of the church, the early church in Acts 2 at the day of Pentecost, we know that the 12 disciples, the 12 apostles, they were keen to take the gospel to the world. And so as they went out after Pentecost, we know that James stayed and looked after the church in Jerusalem. Okay, so he was the first example of a lead pastor in scripture, James, by staying back in Jerusalem while the 12 apostles went out after Pentecost. Now, James was a great leader. He loved the church. He was big on that. He was, he was big about having sound doctrine. Okay, as you can read about James through the scriptures. But James was so passionate about his, his God and his Jesus and his church that it, it actually brought him, his life to an end. And so the, gov- the general uh, where the Jews lived at this time, it was under the Roman governance. And the Roman governor at this time was Porcius. Festus, And when he died, there was a gap between him and the successor. Now, during this gap, the Jewish uh, high priest asserted his uh, hostile authority against James. He brought him to the Sanhedrin, had him trialed, had him arrested and trialed, and they found him guilty under when there was no imperial governance. And so they threw him, tradition tells us that they threw him off the edge of the temple where he landed, but he didn't die. So they stoned him. He continued to live. So the angry mob bashed him to death. So James died a martyr's death. So that's James. That's the author that we're about to read, the half brother of Jesus Christ. And so our journey today is we're going to read the 11 verses and then I'm only going to focus on the first four. So I'm going to unpack verse one. And then I will unpack two to four. That's going to be our journey for today. So follow with me on page 974, James chapter 1 to 11. We'll read right through. Follow along. This letter is from James, a slave, or some other versions might say servant, of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. I am writing to the 12 tribes of Jewish believers scattered abroad. Greetings, dear brothers and sisters. When troubles come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow. For when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete, needing nothing. Which is just summed up in one word, Christ-likeness. Verse 5. If you need wisdom, ask our generous God and he will give it to you. He will not rebuke you for asking, but when you ask him, be sure that your faith is in God alone. Do do not waver, for a person with divided loyalty is unsettled as a wave of the sea that is blown and tossed by the wind. Such people should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. 
their loyalty is divided between God and the world. And they are unstable in everything they do. Believers who are poor have something to boast about. For God has honored them. And those who are rich should boast that God has humbled them. They will fade away like a little flower in the field. One of the most... Sorry, church. The, the praise of worship just brought me to tears. Yes, I'm a crybaby, church. Uh, this new heart that God's given me as, as I was converted is sometimes embarrassing. One of the most daunting things I had to ever do in my life was to meet Renee's family. Um, Renee's parents uh, were divorced, and so to meet them it was like meet the mom and her family, and then meet the dad and his family. And so for me, um, to, to meet them for the first time as, as a color man was very daunting because um, I, I wasn't sure how they were going to receive me. Um, but in the end, they loved me. You know, like I am the favorite person to ever enter that family. Um, and I paved the way for the rest of the color guys that came in after me. Um, and I make sure I let them know that. Um, but when I was there with Renee's family and watching her interact with her family, her, auntie, her aunties, her uncles, her parents, I, I was able to see that this woman that I was courting had, had, was special. I could see the way she was submissive to the authorities in her life. I could see how she had a servant heart. I could see who in her family shaped the person that she was. I could see in her family who molded the way she thought. And so for me to see that journey and meet the family was very exciting for me. To be able to see how she was molded through the interactions of her family. And so what is true for us when we meet people's families is true for Jesus Christ. And so we're going to start at verse 1. But before we go there, in your booklets, for those that have got your pens, in our booklet, we have, it's got there, the big idea. So if you've got a pen, this is what you need to write in that big idea, because this is what I'm preaching on. The preaching team and sermon team, this is where they want me to talk and base my, my sermon around, and this is where I need to land the plane. So in your booklets, you've got the big idea. I need you to write down... It's about the transforming process, not the transformation. It's about the transforming process, not the transformation. Meaning that we never arrive. We're never going to be perfect until that day is coming, but that's glory. Um, I love this big idea. The reason why I'm proud of this big idea, because it was one of the young person in our sermon team, Tyler Vanderveer, that came up with it. So I can't take any credit so give him all the credit when you see him um, thanks for making me look good Tyler so let's start with James 1 1 church let's unpack this this letter James writes in the very first verse he says this this letter is from James a slave and a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ I wish I knew what I knew now because I would have made this series 11 parts. I would have just spent one whole sermon just on this one verse. But I'm going to try and do it in about five minutes, okay? The reason why this is so profound. In the Gospel of Mark, 
chapter 3, verse 21. This this story of Jesus, he's talking to the people just like I'm talking to you. And as he's talking to the people, verse 21 tells us that his family come and they grab him and they go, oh, and they sort of backpedal with Jesus. This is the picture you get when you read Mark 3, 21. And they're like, this guy's lost his mind, the family say. This guy, they're pointing to Jesus, saying he has lost his mind. Woohoo, lost. Because of the things Jesus was saying. In the same chapter, down in verse 31 to 32, Jesus is again talking to the people. And so he's talking to the people. And this time, the family from inside the house sent a messenger. Right? They sent a messenger to Jesus to tell him to come inside the house. We've got something to tell you. But they don't have anything important to tell Jesus. All they want to do is get him out from the public and hide him in the house because they're trying to say to Jesus, hey, you need to just zip it, come in, because of the things Jesus was saying. What was Jesus saying? Well, Jesus was telling them, I am God. I am this promised Messiah that you've all been waiting for. I am the Christ. But his family doesn't believe him. They're like, he's gone cuckoo. Get him inside. Hide him. In the same gospel of Mark, in chapter 6, 3 to 4, we, we read that um, he's now talking to the locals. Right? So now he's like, let's say it's one of us, we're one of our children. He comes in here and he's talking to us. And then the people look at him and they go, isn't that the son of that carpenter? Yeah. Isn't that Mary's boy? Yeah. Well, isn't that um, the brother to, to James and, 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 and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Yeah. I mean, how would you feel to be the brother with the name Jesus? I feel sorry for that guy when I was reading the Bible. I was like, wow. Imagine that, being the brother of Jesus with the name Judas. Judas is the guy that kisses Jesus and betrays him, right? But yeah, they go, yeah, that's him. That's the same guy. So these people, they saw Jesus you know, as he was growing up. See, the thing that's confusing is that all we get in Scripture is Jesus was born. He comes out when he's about 30. And he dies. And then he ascends into heaven. There's no other information from 0 to 30. We've got no idea what happened there. But these people know. They're looking. They, if Jesus had any sin, the family would know. The locals would know. And so they're seeing Jesus going, hey, I am the Christ. I am the promised Messiah. I, I am God. And they go, whoa, whoa, whoa. No, no you're not. No, no, you're not, Jesus. And so Jesus now steps forward in verse 4. And he says this, this line. He says, you know, a prophet is accepted everywhere. Except in his own town, relatives, and family. Can you feel the humanity of Jesus? The agony of this loneliness because his very close people don't believe in him. It gets even um, more clearly in the Gospel of John, chapter 7, 25. It literally just says this. And his brothers do not believe him. But in James 1, 1. He says, this is a letter from James, a slave of God. Now he's humbled. And of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now he believes 
Jesus is master. And Jesus is Christ. Because he is the resurrection. And he is God. What would it take for your brother to convince you that he was God? Imagine you leave church right now and on Facebook is one of your brothers or your sisters or your mother or your father or your cousin or your auntie or your uncle. And on Facebook they've got their post, I am God. I could think of many unrighteous things to say to that comment, right? For them to just try and play God. But here's James. They did not believe that Jesus was who he was. And if we were to look at the Apocrypha, which are the books of the, that never made the Bible, they paint this picture that Jesus, when he was young, that um, he, he took this clay bird, sparrows, he breathed life into it, and the birds became life and they flew away. They even have a record of Jesus playing with his friend, and he died, and this little child in Jesus made him well, brought him back to life again. They even had this thing where James and his father was cutting wood, and it came up short. And Jesus touched the wood and it became the right length, right? And it was a miracle of Jesus. So if, if those books were telling us the truth, then the, the family would have had something to, to, to have a foundation to believe that he was God. But they didn't believe him. And the family doesn't work together to, to try and you know, bring forth his case that Jesus is God. They, they deny it that he is not God. They don't believe. But what was it that changed James to go, hold on a second. My half-brother, he is Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's book in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 7 tells us that James saw with his own eyes his brother Jesus after the resurrection. That's what it took. For James, because if any man can say that he was going to die and, and be raised again in three days and pull it off, he has to be God. He has to be God. And then we go to verse 2. And this one gets a bit hairy. So I need you to stay with me. But he goes, dear brothers and sisters, when troubles come your way, what, what's it say now? Say it loud for me. Consider it an opportunity for what? Oh, who here sees the trials as great joy? Anyone? Anyone goes, man, I just praise the Lord for this joy. This is just fantastic. Thank you, Lord. I mean, this verse just doesn't compute with me, doesn't it? Just, just, it just rattles you. Kind of like the other verses in Scripture that says, love your enemies. Woo! Thank you, Lord. That's a good one. That makes a whole lot of sense. Or what about the other one? If they hit one cheek, turn the other cheek. Yeah, right. You know what I have to say about that? You hit the other cheek, that's it. I've ran out of cheeks, man. It's on. You know? We're going to get done and dirty after you take the other cheek. But here, James says something that's very hard for us to humanly grasp. Because he says, when some of the other translations say that when joy, when trials come, count it all joy. And so he's saying, when troubles come your way, not if, but when troubles come your way, consider it. An opportunity for great joy. See, the truth of the matter is, some of us have come in here and we've never experienced any trial. And that's cool. There's no judgment against you. But the Bible says it's not a matter of if, it's when. When trial comes. Some of us have come in here and, and, and we're in a trial now. 
right, we've come in with a heavy heart. Some of us, it's our experience that we go into a trial, we come out of a trial to only go back into another trial. Come out again and go in again. That's some of our experience, yeah? In, out, in, out of trials. Some of us are in a trial today from something that happened years ago. And we still came into this, to this church to, to, to try and find hope and solace, to try and give us some sort of peace and understanding of our trial. And James, right here in verse 2, doesn't muck around. Right up the front, he goes, it's a hard knock life. And I love that he just starts there, right into the deepest, darkest seasons. He starts right there in verse 2. You don't even have to be a Christian to agree to that one. It's a hard knock life. You don't even have to be a believer. You're just like, yep, preacher said it again. I agree with that one. That's, that's absolutely, life, life is tough. But before we try to understand joy, I have to unpack a few things. We feel more than we think. We feel more than we think. Now, I'm not saying don't feel the pain because that's invalidation and that's not where God sits. Right? We, we have we got to embrace that pain, embrace that, that, that hurt, that, that, that um, paralyzing feeling. We've got to embrace it because that's real. But for some of us, when we hit trials, we feel more clearly than we think. Right? We feel more clearly than we think. But if we continue on that path, then we're going to feel it. And then we're going to think something negative. Then we're going to believe that negativity. And then we're going to feed that negativity. And then we're going to live negatively. And here are some of the things that we try to, that we feel to, and we move to this thing that we try to think. And one of the first things that we think when we're in a trial is, God is punishing you. I grew up in a church that was so conservative that when somebody had some sort of um, a bad time, that the, the rumors were, I wonder what sin those people committed. This lady loses her husband and, and her husband walks out on her and the church is saying, oh, I wonder what sin she did. And so we get this idea when trials come that God is punishing you, but God does not punish us. I would leave the church right now if God was punishing us when we hit trials. You know why? Because that will make God a liar. Because he said that he punished everything in his son Jesus Christ. Once and for all. For him to then punish us, that's a great injustice. That'll be like sending me and and Elia to prison for something I did. It's an injustice. So we can feel the pain But we can't think this because if you think this, you'll believe it. And if you believe it, you will feed it. And if you feed it, you will live negatively. The other thing we do when we're in trials is we think God is failing us. We feel like God is failing me. But I want to affirm and encourage you that God is not without power and God is not without a plan. And so sometimes when you go into a trial, you feel like you've been buried. When in actual fact, God has planted you for something greater. He is not punishing you, but we're going to feel this. And then if you, if you, if you believe that God is punishing you, then, then you're going to feed it and then you're going to live negatively. 
The other thing we do is we think, well, God said he's going to make it all better. God never said he's going to make it all better while we're here. There's coming a time, Revelation 21, verses 1 to 4 tells us, there's a coming a time where there will be no more sorrow, no more pain, no more death, no more tears. But that's coming. He never promises that things are just going to get better now, here. But he does promise that you will get better, that you can change if you just learn to trust in Jesus. Spurgeon, he said that trials make golden Christians. Spurgeon also says that, um, that some of us won't realize the graces that God gives us if it wasn't for our trials. Alan White says that if you would just learn to endure, Alan White being one of the founders of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, if you just learn to endure the test of faith, it is more precious than gold. And she goes on to write that it will then strengthen you for the next test. I love those words. I love those words. God will make it all better for us. We can feel it, but if we're going to believe it and think it, we're going to live negatively. There's a guy, his name is H. Norman Wright, being W-R-I-G-H-T. He has written over 80 books, and he is a family child uh, and marriage therapist, and he is a trauma specialist. Uh, now, the book that I'm going to refer to and quote to you is from A Better Way to Think. Okay, and I just want to read from his book, it's, it's quote, and I just need you to follow me in what I'm trying to um, apply what James is saying. He says this, think about this, you can't evoke thoughts by feeling a certain way, but you can evoke and to some degree control feelings by directing your thoughts. Our thoughts are the origin of our behaviors. He's a believer. He's a Christian. Each behavior begins this way. A thought stimulates an electrochemical response which produces emotion. Emotion results in an attitude. Attitude produces behavior. This process affects the way we think and feel physically. So negative or toxic thoughts produce toxic emotions. Those produce toxic attitude which result in toxic behavior. Thoughts create emotions that can have a lasting physical effect on your body. For example, when we dwell on the old hurts and wounds, we build a mental habit. Every time we think about that pain from the past, stress and its toxic effects surfaces with increasing speed each time we think that negative thought. We build a stronger pathway to that negative emotion and we're more likely to express ourselves in a negative way. This is why it is never wise to react to the first emotion you feel. It is a physiological response designed to alert and focus you not to direct your actions. Isn't that good? You see, but when we hit trials, we feel more clearly than we think. And so we feel that God is punishing us. We feel that God is failing us. We feel that God said he was going to make it all better. And then we, because we tease that out, we believe it and then we feed it and then we live negatively. And so James, right up the beginning, he just hits it. Bang. Hey, let me put it in verse 2 so that we can't miss it. Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. One of the things that I failed at when I was putting this sermon together 
I was going to share one of my current trials, you know, that I'm facing. And as I was writing at the trials, because I come around and I see you, the, the church, and I know what some of you guys are going through, I immediately said, oh, I'm not going to share this trial, but like, this trial is nowhere near as bad as so-and-so's trial or, or bad as th- that person's trial. Or, this is really insignificant. So I just took it out of the sermon. And then God was like, what are you doing? Like, why are you comparing your trial to someone else's trial? And then I thought, you know what? I have to share my failings with you guys that I failed in that area because now I want to teach you that one of the things we do as people is that when we are in our trial, we look at others and we go, well, they wouldn't have all that swag if they went through what I'm going through. True? Right? We look at the other person and go, oh, she wouldn't be walking around like this if she just went through what I'm going through. Or he wouldn't be so dapper if he was just to walk in my shoe. And we compare because we look at others and we go, you know what? The grass is greener on their side. But the grass is not green on the other side. The grass is greener where you water it. And where you need to water is your own grass. And water it with the things of God and the promises that he gives to us in his word. Every time you look at them and their grass, you're watering their grass. Stop watering their grass. Water your own. Make yourself more resilient by just watering your own grass by thinking on the things of God. Joy. Joy is the domain of God's people. Here's why. Some of us, as Christians, we we, we mix up happiness and joy. Happiness is, uh, my wife gives me a message, Um, I'm happy. You know, I get home. Um, and I see my kids smiling to, 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 to embrace me as I come home. I'm happy. Um, Elliot makes me a coffee at work without even telling me. I'm happy, right? Happiness is circumstantial. God people, God's people lives in joy because joy is in spite of circumstance. It's in spite. So happiness is because of circumstance, because I have this, because I have her, I'm happy. But joy is in spite of our circumstance. And joy is this. If we are to try and find joy and encourage joy in our community, it's Jesus, others, you. That's the process. Jesus first, centered on everything that we do is Jesus. Others, we exist for CCAS. That's why we exist, for the students, for the families, uh, teachers. We exist for that. We don't exist for anything else. That's others. And then we exist for you. We've got to watch over you. Now, if I was to take our leadership team and have us focus on the inside, we would never go to the outside. And if I was to focus on the inside, it would look like this, Josh. And that doesn't make a word. (laughs) It'll be you, others, Jesus. It doesn't work that way. Joy for God's people is Jesus, others, than us. And when we're serving others and we're centered in Jesus and we're helping, we can't help but be helped when we're helping. It's the divine thing that God does. Because Jesus is the head of the church. He ain't going to let you down. He ain't going to let you down. And so James would have seen this whole process in his brother Jesus. And Jesus, he walks to this garden, uh, garden of Gethsemane. But Jesus, in Hebrews 12, 2, Jesus says this, that for the joy that was set before him, 
He considered it joy. For the joy that was set before him, he considered it joy. How do we understand joy? This is how I know how to teach it. Raise your hands if you want to be more like Jesus Christ. Nice and high. Raise them up. Awesome. Raise your hands if you want a trial. Oh, well, everyone. Okay, let's do this again. Raise your hands if you want to be more like Jesus Christ. All right, that's the majority of us. Raise your hands if you want a trial. The two are the same question. Two are the same. You see, verse 4, James says the goal of these trials is to make us more like Jesus, to be more loving, to be less judgmental, to be centered on grace, to have mercy, to have compassion, to look after the orphans, to look after the weak. In order for us to have that, in order for us to have that, we have to have trials so that he can grow us. It's the same thing. You want to be more like Christ? You're going to need a trial. You want to have a great body? You've got to work out. You want to be smart in a certain area? You've got to read books. You want to run a marathon? You've got to train. You want to be more like Jesus? Trials are coming. Trials are coming. But James says that when troubles come, to consider it an opportunity for great joy. So how can Jesus consider the cross joy. I couldn't think anything more painful than the cross, but he says in Hebrews 12 too, that he considered the cross joy. I want you to just close your eyes. And I'm going to read you something that a medical doctor put together about Jesus on the cross. And I, and I just want you to have in your mind that as I read these words that, that Jesus says that he considered this joy As Jesus slowly sagged down with more weight on the nails in the wrists, excruciating, fiery pain shot along the fingers and up the arms to explode in the brain. The nails in the wrists were putting pressure on the medium nerve. Large nerve trunks which traverse the mid-wrist and hand. And as he pushed himself upward to avoid this stretching torment, He placed his full weight on the nail through his feet. Again, there was searing agony as the nail tore through the nerves between the metatarsal bones of these feet. At this point, another phenomenon occurred. As the arms fatigued, great waves of cramps swept over the muscles, knotting them in deep, relentless, throbbing pain. With these cramps came the inability to push himself upward. Hanging by the arm, the pectoral muscles, the large muscles of the chest were paralyzed and the intercostal muscles, the small muscles between the ribs were unable to act. Air could be drawn into the lungs but could not be exhaled. Jesus fought to raise himself in order to get even one short breath. Finally, the carbon dioxide level increased in the lungs and in the bloodstream and the cramps partially subsided. So the common method of ending a crucifixion was by a crucifracture 
the breaking of the bones of the leg. This prevented the victim from pushing himself upward. The tension could not be relieved from the muscles of the chest and rapid suffocation occurred. The legs of the two thieves were broken, but when the soldiers approached Jesus, they saw that this was unnecessary. Apparently, to make doubly sure of death, the legionnaire drove his lance between the ribs upward through the pericardium and into the heart. John 19.34 states, And immediately there came out blood and water. Thus, there was an escape of watery fluid from the sac surrounding the heart and the blood of the interior of the heart. This is rather conclusive post-mortem evidence that Jesus died not of the usual crucifixion, death by suffocation, but of heart failure due to shock and constriction of the heart by fluid in the pericardium. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Jesus says, you can open your eyes. But he counted that as joy, that the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. You were his joy. Pastor Alvin, can I get you to the front? David Vanderveer, can I get you to the front? Pastor John Den, can I get you to the front? Elia, can I get you to the front? Narice, Colin, Rayful, can I get you to the front? Rian, can I get you to the front? Tyler, can I get you to the front? Glass, can I get you to the front? I don't know what trial you guys are in. endured it because you you were his joy so I'm going to give you the opportunity to stop hiding and to confront what you're facing I don't need to know we don't need to know but the invitation is for you to come forward and for us just to pray with you trans front please and maybe you're somebody that's never really taken a step to get to know Jesus before and so I'm going to stand to the back all of those that want prayer you come to these guys here that are spread across and you come and they'll put their hands on you they'll pray for you but if you've never made a decision for baptism or never made a decision for Jesus Christ I'm going to be standing here no pressure But you can come to me and I'll embrace and pray. I'll get your details after the service and we can begin that journey. Church, don't let the devil steal your joy by being stubborn and sitting there. Come. Come to one of our brothers and sisters at the front and let us pray some life, hope 
endurance into your situation. The opportunity is now. You are a great God. We also, Father, we want to leave this place feeling encouraged. We want to leave this place expecting that you're going to help us, that you can surround us with the people we need to be able to deep, dig deep roots so that we can uh, not waver in our faith in the current trials or the trials that await us or the trials that have, have paralyzed us for years. So just be a God that we need, Father. I pray in Jesus' wonderful name. And everybody said...